I have been cussed and discussed, boycotted, talked about, robbed and mobbed, lied about, lied to, hung up, held up, ostracised, criticised and burglarised. The only reason I am in this business now is to see what the hell is going to happen next. Jean Leroy The Shadow Traps, Episode 22, The Fly, The Projector and The Troubadour's Card Louis Le Prince's involvement with the New York Institution for the Instruction of the Deaf and Dumb, his wife's role there as head of the art department and his friendship with the school's principal, Isaac Lewis Peet, had led to him being given use of the school's kiln room for his experiments. His experiments seem to have been originally for pottery work, more specifically to work with his theory that a forced feed from a gas engine attached to a kiln, if properly controlled and directed by the firer, might be equivalent to the breezes in Mexico, which he had seen used in open firings there. I'd like to make a small observation at this point involving a few perhapses and maybes because there are images I have seen of designs for dishes, or perhaps designs for pictures fired onto ceramics, that would be, I think, from Le Prince's American years, which I find compelling, and were possibly done in these New York kilns. Let me describe one. A dish on which sits a letter addressed to Lizzie in Paris, and a ticket stub the exposition universelle and beneath all these partially obscured a letter with a letter heading from the Leeds School of China Pottery. Now, you might expect this to be a typical still life, i.e. something seen from the side, but it isn't. It's seen from above. It's as if you are actually looking down into the dish. It's an unusual choice of view and there is one detail that I find particularly striking. Sitting on the dish is a fly. It's a detail that throws me and then draws me in every time I see it. The whole piece is pretty realistic anyway, the envelope with its postmark, for example, but it is the almost oxymoronic idea of the picture being made quirky by a mundane detail that gets me. You want to swipe the fly away with your hand. What lies behind this design? Is there a private significance to the letters and the ticket stub? Or is it a bold move to create a piece of art whose only distinguishing feature seems to be its determination not to look like art, but to pass itself off as real? There the fly sits, next to letters that have been dropped into a dish, much like we will have in our own kitchen or hallways, with plates holding keys, bills, poems and shopping lists. Where was Le Prince's head when he did this? Was he lost in the attempt to take a piece of technology such as a gas-fired kiln and use it to make something that transcended its form to become real? 
like the painting he did in Leeds of laughing monks who might at any time fall out of the frame, was Le Prince now pushing his way ever closer to the idea of capturing reality as it had never been captured before. According to Lizzie, it was while adapting a gas engine to make a kiln for glass firing serve also for the decoration of China that Le Prince made the helpful and valued acquaintance of J. H. Banks, the institution engineer. Banks would be a fixture at the institute for many years and he also seems to have become Le Prince's first assistant in the pursuit of motion pictures, for at some point Le Prince started to work on his cameras and projectors here. It seems that the magic lantern type projector device that we mentioned last episode, some of the pieces for which were made by Woodturner William Kuhn, was taken into the kiln room. This projector had perforations for lenses, spindles and doors for the operation of lights. During the period January 1885 to April 1887, Kuhn fitted gas burners for the machine and constructed further parts for it. In 1886, Le Prince installed it in the kiln room of the New York Institute where he was working on his gas engine experiments with Joseph Banks. Banks later testified that during the period from 1886 to April 1887, I saw in the kiln room of the NY Institution for the Deaf and Dumb an apparatus resembling a large magic lantern. Near its base it had a scroll decoration cut out and the sheet sides. There is one lens used in this instrument. At this time I and Mr Le Prince were arranging a gas engine for the kilns in this room. I know that during this said period Mr Augustin Le Prince was working on an invention and that it was his custom to stay often quite late in the evening at the kiln room. I made several appliances for the said Mr Augustin Le Prince as a favour and did such work as drilling, filing, some of the parts of the machine he brought to me. I also gave him permission to use my private workbench and tools and he used them. At the time I had an invention of my own on hand and we had several talks on patent affairs. I also know that one night during this period he left the kiln room very late after working his machine and that the officer on duty about the buildings and Mr Jacobi took Mr Augustin Le Prince to the office of the institution to be identified as Mr Le Prince was seen by him to leave at that unusual hour. This was thought to be a good joke at the time as Mr Le Prince was actively interested in the art department of the institute. And there is Le Prince again putting in the extra hours, the extra effort to get things right and also there he is again getting himself mistaken for a ne'er-do-well. And here he is, interestingly, discussing invention with someone, Joseph Banks, and discussing the subject of patents. What were they talking about? The importance of having them, the difficulties and expense of getting them, the dangers of not having one.
In the last episode, we looked at a couple of devices, both of which seem to have been for projection. And we have just seen the magic lantern-like projector again today. And of course, all these depended on there having been images made to show. So where was the camera? We know that Le Prince intended to film students from the classes of Miss Ida Montgomery and Miss James T. Meigs. Le Prince asked his friend, Mr. Jones, the drama teacher, to pose for a series and told him that when the camera was perfected, he would film him in the act of telling a comic story in sign language. Although Le Prince's promise was to photograph him rather than film him because, of course, these things didn't yet exist and so the vocabulary for them didn't exist yet either. And we'll see this again when people like Adolphe try and describe the work on film, essentially trying to describe things for which names have not yet been invented. So, Le Prince will have been working on camera designs as well, and we'll look at these. But in the meantime, he was also having to pay the bills. If motion pictures were the dream, the reality, for the time being, was work on the cycloramas of Theophile Poipo. This was the work the prince had at this time, and this is what, combined with Lizzie's wage, was keeping the family going. We have seen Le Prince's involvement with the Battle of Shiloh panorama. The cyclorama that followed would perhaps become the most well-known of the three he'd eventually work on. The Monitor and Merrimack panorama on the corner of Madison Avenue and 59th Street opened in January 1886 in a striking octagonal purpose-built theatre. It recreated the scene of a famous Civil War naval battle between the ironclad Merrimack of the Confederacy and its consorts and the Union Army's ironclad Monitor with several large wooden ships of war. As a programme proclaimed, more than 20,000 square feet of canvas cover the inner walls of the building, while the floor is covered with natural ground, water, grass, trees and other accessories so perfectly that the observer who stands in the centre of it all cannot discern whether real joins a representation, nor can he fail to imagine himself on the very spot with the actual conflict going on about him. In the spring of 1884, Le Prince had first ordered magic lantern slides needed for his panorama work from the studio at number one Chamber Street, which is where he met and became acquainted with Jean Leroy, an inventor himself who worked there. I recollect an order was for a number of lantern slides and military scenes that he explained were to be made to scale wrote Leroy later, so that he would be able to project them without any varying sizes or proportions. It was to help him to make outline drawings on canvas to be used in a panorama of war. This was Jean Leroy speaking, who supplied so many of the film pioneers in New York and who designed and built his own projectors. The colourful character even claimed to have been the first person to project film back onto a screen, although he seems to have forged a poster 
in order to back up this dubious claim. Leroy had come to New York in 1872 and found work as an apprentice in the studios of the English photographer Joseph T. Thwaites. Thwaites was a typically Yorkshire name and I wonder if he was any relation to George Henry Thwaites who ran a successful photographic studio back in York. Not New York, Old York, Yorkshire, England. Incidentally, another key photographer studio in New York belonged to Raleigh Brothers who hailed from Bradford, just down the road from Leeds. It is some indication of Le Prince's worth that he was made manager of the team of artists charged with painting the Monitor and Merrimack panorama. With the exception of C.H. Ritter of Chicago, who worked on the foreground, the rest of the team were young Frenchmen, all of whom had graduated from the prestigious École des Beaux-Arts. The programme, dated 1886, describes the story of the encounter between the Monitor and the Merrimack. The panorama presents pictures of both days' battle, bringing in the action with the Monitor on the second day and depicting also the carnage wrought by the Merrimack the day before. The burning of the Congress, the sinking of the Cumberland and the short-range engagements between the Monitor and the Merrimack are the principal figures of the naval scene. The land scene represents Camp Butler at Newport News whence the Federal troops watched the overthrow of their own fleet and drove the Confederate gunboats from the surrendered Congress on one day and witnessed the engagement of the great ironclad with a tiny monitor on the next. The point of view of the spectator is from Newport News Point. The grey-bearded officer on the horse is General Mansfield and the horsemen with him are members of his staff. Back of them, are the white tents of the camp and the houses of the village. Nearer the blazing congress, the artillery is being brought into position, and upon the beach, soldiers are running to the rescue of the shipwrecked crew. To the right of the congress, in the shallower water, the Minnesota rests aground. Opposite Camp Butler, the Monitor and the Merrimack are raining shot and shell upon each other's iron sides, and the two smaller Confederate vessels Jamestown and Yorktown are firing upon the Minnesota further out the roads, while the neutral vessels of the British and French fleets are observing the battle in the distance. At the right of the scene, the gallant Cumberland is sinking with her guns roaring and colours flying, her crew escaping by the lifeboats or attempting to swim ashore. Far to the east, Fortress Monroe is dimly outlined with a rip-raps fortification in the mid-channel opposite, to the right. The rifle pits and earthworks of Camp Butler are accurately represented and the 11th New York Fire Zouaves are portrayed advancing rapidly between the white tents to the shore to take part in the conflict. What is striking is how much movement the painting has attempted to depict. Perhaps a static action scene was frustrating for Le Prince who may have been imagining the logical next steps to take with the panoramas. The idea of a panorama could well have informed Le Prince's sense of what a film might be. In fact, Lizzie would write that This broad experience in posing and photographing artistic groups and the observation of effects of colour 
and light on distance and foreground added greatly to his practical knowledge and power of visualisation and led him to consider seriously the detail and cost of constructing a moving picture panorama in place of a motionless one. And so we can see and must mention once again that although paintings, panoramas were surely part of the lineage of film. On at least one occasion, the Merrimack and Monitor panorama played host to Lizzie's students from the Institute. When they came upon the platform which represents Newport News, they broke out into voluble exclamations. They asked questions so fast that no one could answer them with the pauses necessary to take breath. The children did not have to pause to take breath, for not one of them uttered a sound. They were the pupils of Mrs. LaPrince's art class of the New York Institute for Deaf Mutes, Washington Heights, and the words they uttered flowed from the tips of their fingers instead of from their lips. Their power of sight was remarkably acute, and they set to work with a will to unravel the mysteries of the illusions of the panorama. Although delighted with the naturalness of the effect, they had less difficulty than an ordinary observer in detecting which handle to the wheelbarrow was material and projected from the canvas, and which was painted on the wall. There is a short postscript to the story of the Monitor and the Merrimack Cyclorama. I didn't discover this until one evening after I had given a talk on the prince, and a member of the audience came up and talked to me afterwards and told me about it. His name, by the way, was Eric. He gave me his card. On it, it had his name and the word Troubadour. And the moral of this story, I think, is that if you are given advice by a troubadour with a business card, pay attention. Good things will happen. And it's to him the credit should go for finding this out, because he told me that after its run in New York, the canvas of the Monitor and Merrimack had been shipped to Blackpool and used there as an attraction. After a little light digging around of my own, I uncovered more of the story which I would like to tell in more length if we get an opportunity in the future. For now, though, the building which housed the panorama, which became called the Spectatorium, can be seen in many old postcards of the seaside resort of Blackpool, England. It was a large round building next to the original Big Dipper, a two-train wooden roller coaster that dipped and curled its way around Blackpool's Pleasure Beach. The Spectatorium was also next to a switchback railway, which was a kind of proto-roller coaster, and which I mentioned because, well, because it was John Whitley who was responsible for bringing switchback railways to Britain. That's right, the La Prince story even plays a part in the history of roller coasters. Well, as Gina Roy said, it's worth sticking around just to see what the hell is going to happen next. During this time in the States, the mid-1880s, the Le Princes would, as we know, on occasion be joined by the irrepressible John Robinson Whitley, who really had the bit between his teeth now, as he was involved in a new project, an exhibition of the arts and manufactures of the United States of America to be held in London. Whitley had, 
in no time at all, become the Director General of the American Exhibition, a limited company largely run and absolutely dominated by Whitley. He had formed a council of welcome consisting of around a thousand dignitaries who would support the project, and he went about promoting the exhibition with indisputable vigour. The efforts included establishing a monthly journal named the American Eagle, first issued on March the 4th, 1885. It was short-lived, but for a while, 15,000 copies at a time were sent out to various companies, organisations and individuals across the states. Whitley also made trips to several foreign countries to promote the project, contacted the press, generating a great volume of newspaper coverage, held banquets and gave lectures. The plans seemed to be going well. The ever-effusive book, Four National Exhibitions, wrote, The work of the organisation went on rapidly and well on both sides of the Atlantic, and in September 1885, Mr Whitley again sailed for New York, whence he undertook another tour among the chief centres of industry in America. Amongst other well-known Americans who promised to exhibit was Mr George M. Pullman, who personally entertained Mr Whitley, showing him the town of Pullman near Chicago, which was even then of such extent that the trip could be made on a locomotive. George Pullman, incidentally, was the inventor of the Pullman sleeper coach for trains and his town, named after him, was a company town designed to house, school and feed his workers. The town was, it has to be said, arguably as much a way of controlling his workers as it was a way of looking after them. Pullman offered Whitley a model of the village, covering at least 10,000 square feet. But, as Four National Exhibitions put it, this exhibit, like many other interesting ones, was not sent to London, owing to the postponement of the exhibition, concerning which more anon. Well, let's at least take a little look at this postponement now. You see, there had been some rumblings of discontent over Whitley's project, which four exhibitions had put down to malice and misrepresentation, coupled with other causes. The American exhibition was originally to be opened on the 1st of May 1886, but had been postponed. The reason for this, depending on who you asked, and who you believed was either that Whitley had graciously agreed to move the date of his exhibition so as not to clash with a colonial exhibition already due to be held in 1886, or because of some controversy around Whitley's misrepresentative claim of royal patronage. But more of that anon. Whatever the reason, the delay seems to have cost him the goodwill of many would-be exhibitors, many from the East Coast. Further disaster struck when the President of the United States, Grover Cleveland, withdrew his support and involvement with the exhibition. The East Coast was falling away from Whitley and it was the East Coast that he wanted. Philadelphia, New York, Boston, the allegedly civilised side of America, the recognisably Anglo-Saxon urban side, the side where the businesses, the invention, the fine arts were, in a last-ditch attempt to save the exhibition, Whitley sailed back to America. As the story goes, he was sat at a hotel window in Washington 
waiting for a promised interview with President Cleveland when his attention was caught by a strange procession. It was not a circus, though somewhat like one, perhaps at first sight, but only the Wild West show of a personage popularly known as Buffalo Bill, a show which presented living and moving pictures of a fast-vanishing phase of national existence on the ever-receding frontier line between the territory of the white man and the happy hunting grounds of the Redskins. While contemplating this curious pageant, a sudden thought struck Mr Whitley. Why not console ourselves, he asked, for the defection of the eastern states by enlisting on our side those of the west? Is not Buffalo Bill, with his cowboys and his Indians, every bit as much a genuine product of American soil as Edison's telephones or Pullman's railway cars? And in this way, John Whitley began his first steps towards an association with none other than the larger-than-life cowboy, William Cody, better known as Buffalo Bill. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Shadow Traps. If you'd like to know more about this project or to support it in any way, please go to the Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash The Shadow Traps. Thank you very much for listening.